Our sermon text this morning as we continue our journey uh, consecutively through the Psalter, as we've been doing each summer um, for a number of years, um, continues this morning in Psalm 65, our sermon text today. Um, It's printed for you on the back of your order of worship if you'd like to follow along um, there as we read it together. Brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. It is more precious than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. Such is God's word. Listen now. Psalm 65. To the choir master. A psalm of David. A song. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you've caused all the holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us grace now by your Spirit to read, mark, learn, and even inwardly digest this portion of your word, that it might bear fruit in us and enable us to hold evermore fast to the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
This morning, I want us to think for a minute about what the scriptures do for us, the way that they uh, impact us, the way that they serve to illuminate and expand our imaginations, the way that they tell us and shape our sense of what the world is actually for and what our lives are actually about. Now, most of the moments of our days and weeks and months, of course, are taken up with the repetitive and necessary tasks of living in this fallen world. We have to earn an income. We have to grow or purchase and then prepare food every day so that we can eat. We have to travel from one place to another in a safe manner. We have to make sure we have clean clothing and sufficient sleep and that we're taking care of our bodies and our homes and whatever else is necessary for us to live each day. And that's all fine and good. And certainly the scriptures speak to those aspects of our lives. They, for example, tell us of the dignity and beauty of human work and life and play. They give us ethical and moral instruction for how we are to conduct ourselves in all of these various activities, particularly as we relate to God and to our neighbor. And the scriptures give us a lens to comprehend the very real suffering that exists for each one of us as we go through these daily requirements of living in this world that is marked by sin and death everywhere we look. But the scriptures also do more than that. They do more than sort of enable our present existence. At times, the scriptures go beyond our daily experience in this world. They point to something greater, something beyond our current everyday experience of God and one another and this world and this creation. Beloved, there are places in the scriptures, and these are remarkable texts, where the veil is pulled back for a few moments at least. And we are given a vision of God's ultimate intentions for the world. What he actually means to do when he brings an end to our current state of existence and brings about the death and resurrection of the entire cosmos for his own glory and pleasure. Because that's where we're headed, actually. That's where we're going. These texts are some of the most beloved portions of the scriptures because they give us a picture of the kingdom of God in its fullness, the beauty of the righteousness and faithfulness of God when all of his promises are completely fulfilled. I'm thinking of texts like Isaiah 25 where the prophet writes and says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up, the prophet says, on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death Forever, the prophet says. 
And the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces. Or we might think of Job 19 where Job proclaims in the very midst of his terrible loss and suffering. The death of his children. The loss of his health. He declares a hope that looks to the future. He says, for I know, Job says, that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, says Job, as he is experiencing that destruction in his body, he says, after that, yet in my flesh I shall see God. In my flesh, he says, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Or we might think of Revelation 21, as we heard already this morning as the apostle writes of the vision that he received. And he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard, John says, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, for the old things, have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. What I want to argue this morning is that this psalm, Psalm 65, deserves a place among those other beloved texts and others like them. For it too gives a profoundly beautiful picture of the salvation that God intends and indeed surely will bring for his good creation. That's what this psalm is all about. It is about the future that we look for, the hope that we proclaim, the renewal of creation that God is going to do. The structure of Psalm 65 is illuminating as we seek to understand its purpose. It begins with a simple declaration. The psalmist says, praise is due to you, O God, and to you shall vows be performed. This, we might say, is the thesis of the psalm. It's the fundamental argument that praise is due to God, and the rest of the psalm unfolds and unpacks the reasons why that praise is owed to our Creator and Redeemer. As verse 2 explains, one of the reasons for God's praise is the comprehensiveness of His care for all that He has made. O you who hear prayer, the psalmist says, to you shall all flesh come. 
That name that the psalmist gives for God is a fascinating one. He addresses God with this title. He says, you who hear prayer. And indeed, that is who our God is. Ultimately, all the many prayers that we offer to God are summarized by our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray to our Father, saying, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, behind every desire we offer to God, every petition we make of Him, every request we ask for, is a fundamental desire for the consummation of all things. For God's kingdom to come, indeed. For His will to be done, indeed, on earth as it is in heaven. For heaven, in other words, to come in its fullness to earth. For God to completely destroy the power of sin, death, and the devil, and to wipe away every tear that we carry with us. Friends, I have to say, the older I get, the more I long each day for these things, for the new creation, the easier it is to say, come, Lord Jesus, this is the heart of all of our prayer. And ultimately, this is why the psalmist addresses God in this manner. This is why he calls him, you who hear prayer. Because he knows that ultimately all prayer will be answered by God's eschatological yes and amen in the coming of our Lord. The psalmist then goes on to give another reason for God's praise, and that is his triumph over sin. As the psalmist writes in verse 3, He speaks to God and he says, When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. It's worth noticing here that the psalmist is not saying that God simply overlooks our sin or passes over it. No, he's saying, you triumph over it, O God. Scripturally speaking, sin is not just the bad things that we happen to do. Rather, sin is a kind of power unleashed in the world through the fall of humanity, such that Paul can write in Romans 5 that sin reigned in death. And indeed, this is exactly how sin functions in our lives, as a kind of power that we are subject to. But as the psalmist declares... When iniquities prevail against us, God atones. He triumphs over our transgressions. So, according to the psalmist, God is to be praised because he answers prayer, because he triumphs over sin. And in verse 4, he adds another reason, because he draws his people near to dwell with him. Verse 4 here is actually, I think, in many ways, the real heart of this psalm. Everything that follows flows out of this articulation of God's blessing, this beatitude that is given here in verse 4. The beatitude, the blessing of dwelling always with Him. Beloved, ultimately the promise of the gospel is God, to be with Him. To not be sent away from his presence. To live with him always. The psalmist writes, he says to God, he says, Blessed is the one 
that you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied, the psalmist says, with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple, a longing to be perpetually in God's special presence, to dwell forever with Him as a persistent theme throughout the Psalter, to be near to God always, to, to no longer suffer the separation of sin or the horror of death. This is the great hope of humanity. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 27. He says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple. Or as he says in Psalm 84, How lovely is your dwelling place. O Lord of hosts, my soul longs, the psalmist says, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Or as John tells us in Revelation 21, the culmination of all things will be when we hear these words. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Ultimately, the blessed one in verse 4 is Jesus. The psalmist here speaks prophetically about God's own Son, for He is the one who, by His death, resurrection, and ascension, is now the blessed one whom God has chosen to bring near to dwell in His courts forever. But this verse is also the great hinge of this psalm because it is through the one that is chosen that the many are blessed. Notice the shift in verse 4 from the one to the many. Blessed is the one, the psalmist says, that you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. And then he immediately makes it plural. He says, and so we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house the holiness of your temple. It is because the one has been drawn near and lives forever in the presence of God that all of us are invited in, that all of us have confidence that we will not be sent away. For we do not go into God's presence on our own merits, but His. And then in verses 5 to 13, this promise of the presence of God of God drawing near, is extended from the one, Jesus, to all of creation itself. And here is where the full eschatological promise of this psalm is seen. In verse 5, the psalmist says, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. You see, in this psalm, the expansive kingdom of God is for all the nations. It's for all people. As he says in verse 2, O you who hear, o you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. This is a picture of the redeemed 
very similar to that one that is given to us in Revelation 7, where we find that the people of God that have been drawn near through Jesus Christ are a great multitude that no one can number. That they are drawn from every nation, from every tribe, from all peoples and languages, indeed from all the corners of the earth. Indeed, as verse 8 in our psalm this morning declares, God stills the roaring of the seas. He stills the roaring of the waves. He rules over the tumult of the peoples. Why? So that even those who dwell at the ends of the earth shall be in awe of Him. But then, as we discover in verses 9 to 13, the righteousness of God is revealed not only in the salvation and deliverance of human beings, but indeed all creation is included in the salvation of God. For all creation is to be brought to perfection by Him who has made all things. The end is not only the resurrection of our bodies, friends. The end to which God is leading us is the resurrection of the cosmos itself. These final verses, I think, are some of the most beautiful and poetic in all of the Psalter. As God, like a great cosmic gardener, waters the earth and brings it to full flowering and fruitfulness. A flowering and fruitfulness that can only be described by the psalmist as singing for joy. That that's what creation does in response to the care of God. Listen to the words of the psalmist as he speaks directly to God and praises Him. He says, O God, You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so You have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. Like they put on joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Friends, the salvation of God that is envisioned by the psalmist here is earthy. It is physical. The house of God, according to the psalmist, is not some shadowy spiritual place. No, it is green fields and flocks of sheep and valleys rich with ripe grain. This is the house of God. It is creation itself joining in with the redeemed, shouting and singing for joy and response to God's redeeming and faithful love. Beloved, the picture that this psalm gives is a revelation of the glory of the new creation. This psalm is a picture of where we are headed it is a vision for God's ultimate intentions for us and for the world. A time and place where sin's power has been fully defeated. 
where all flesh has come before God to dwell with Him in His house, and where His dwelling place is now the whole earth, made new by His loving hand. God is so kind to us. He's so gracious and kind to give us throughout the Scriptures these glimpses of the end, these visions. Friends, it is so easy for us to see only what is before us. To be concerned only with the day-to-day details of our lives, our common anxieties. The ups and downs, the small joys, the small sorrows. And to lose sight of the great and all-encompassing work that our God is doing in human history. The great cosmic drama of which our lives are but a small part. For beloved, I tell you this, time is not a circle. It is not. All things will not continue on as they have always been before. No, time itself is going somewhere. And that And there is something better that is coming. Something that no eye has seen, that no ear has heard. Something better than the heart of man could even begin to imagine. For one day we will hear the voice of our risen Lord. And he will say, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Behold, I am making all things new. And on that day, friends, we will say, we will be satisfied, O Lord, with the goodness of your house and the holiness of your temple, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. And on that day, creation itself will join us in singing for joy. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you of the great hope of our salvation. We thank you that the renewal that you bring is not only the deliverance of our souls, but the resurrection of our bodies, and indeed, Father, the resurrection and renewal of all of your good creation. Father, we ask that in your mercy, your Son Jesus would not tarry, but that he would come soon. We ask it through Jesus our Lord. Amen.